I literally told the guy, I was like, I'm sorry I'm a goody two-shoes and I'm boring. You're funny. I guess. Not really. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the show where we shine on like crazy diamonds, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my good friend, the holochrome heroine herself, Jessica Frazier. Oh my gosh, I'm the hero we all need. (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) But not the one we deserve. You're too good for us. Oh no, I am too good for you. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. You know, I can't complain too much. Good. If you were new to the show, our main episodes drop every other week and provide in-depth looks into interesting moments of comic books and how they tie into pop culture and history. But today is one of our Dollar Bin Discoveries mini episodes that we do in between those deep dives. Basically, we spend a lot of time reading through Dollar Bins at local shops, looking for interesting stuff. And while a lot of the issues we find are fun and weird, there may not be enough for us to do a deep dive. At the moment, though, we reserve the right to change our mind later and come back to one of these issues for a larger episode. Each episode features both of us talking about one random issue we came across in the dollar bins, one that fits a theme one of us chose. We talk about what it is, what goes on inside it, and why it's interesting. Basically, these are mini episodes that are meant to provide you with some weekly content between our more in-depth discussions about the weirder and more interesting moments of comic book history. Today, our theme is Fabulous Foil Variants, which is a topic, unsurprisingly, that I chose. So each of us will be discussing a comic that follows that broad theme. So, uh, Jessica, what did you bring to the table today? You got a shiny beach for you here. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the Infinity Crusade number one. Oh, my God. Like, as soon as you said that, I can immediately <laughs> picture the cover. It's like it's almost like solid gold foil. It's almost so close to being almost and there's just faces everywhere just faces. it is yeah so published by marvel comics june 1993 written by jim starlin penciled by ron Lim, inked by al milgram colored by ian vaughn lettered by jack morelli edited by craig anderson and editor-in-chief was our boy tommy defalco <laughs> frequent guest cameo tommy defalco <laughs> Here he is again, folks. It's him and Jim Shooter, man. DeFalco. So, yeah, Shooter's had his chance. It's it's DeFalco's in the house today. So, (laughs) (laughs) so this thing, like you said, it's got a gold foil cover. It has all of these heads of recognizable Marvel characters surrounding the main character of the story, who appears to have light beaming out of her. You know, due to the gold foil. Yeah. So we start this comic off following Adam Warlock. And by the way, buckle up. It's going to be short, but it's going to be a wild ride. (laughs) He is doing some experiments that nobody really seems to be interested in. He's playing around with an orb that was presumably introduced in the prior issues. Mm -hmm. It's big. It's on a stand. That's all we know. He goes into the void to talk to the universe. 
the universe like personified oh like is is it the big dude with like that's like yeah. mostly black or like a blue fit? that's like eternity i think they had him in eternity oh okay, yeah that's who it is whatever i didn't care to look at it it again. no it's fine like this was right when i was really into comic books oh so you know they were getting real cosmic with all their crossovers like so they had the infinity gauntlet the infinity war was the next one and then the yeah. crusade and they were all yeah. written by jim starlin i think they were largely penciled by ron Lim too <laughs> Like it was a, a big thing. And Adam Warlock became one of those real central characters. Yeah, he's he's pretty central um, at this point, yeah. but that'll change <laughs> because <laughs> Eternity like doesn't have a lot of time for him. He's like <laughs> at one time Adam Warlock's like, what are you too busy to listen to me kind of a thing? And he's like, actually, I am busy. I'm a little yeah. too busy for this conversation to continue and just kind of like drops him. And he's like, what Good. the? And so out of the space where Eternity had been, uh, a woman made of pure light came out and she was saying her name was Goddess. And it ended up that she was the exact opposite of Adam Warlock's dark masculine energy. Mm-hmm. So she like trapped him in the ball in exchange for being able to leave the ball to freedom somehow. Like she was just like swapping energies. Here we go. Like bumped out. Like that was the whole thing with Adam Warlock was basically he had made himself like true neutral or neutral good, but he segmented the rest of his personality away. So they became their own beings. The infinity war was all about his dark persona basically coming forth and then creating dark versions of every Marvel superhero out there. Okay, that makes sense because they were talking about his dark persona and yeah. versus her light feminine yeah. energy kind of a thing. I read Infinity War. I I don't know if I read the Infinity Crusade core series. <laughs> I remember a bunch of the series that I was reading had crossover moments with it. But it was like I don't know. It was like very like Oh, well I'll not tell good. you why it may have been difficult to follow <laughs> when we get there. Okay. Don't worry. We will we'll certainly get there. <laughs> yeah. So, as she was being freed from this like ball, uh-huh. all of these superheroes started seeing their particular like religious sign in the sky like that they yeah like and then she goes and she steals the infinity stones and she becomes the redemptress right you know through meditation or something i don't know and so she's dressed basically now like a blonde joan of arc yeah i that is what i really remember on the cover yeah she's on the cover so yeah. then she just starts going around showing herself to different heroes, basically telling them what they want to hear, basically. Mm-hmm. And then a portal opens up at each of these places. And then other members of the crew watch everywhere as people like Aurora, Gamora, Sue Richard, Spider-Man, Daredevil, mm-hmm. Captain America, Thor, and more just like stepping through these portals as though in a daze. So... All of them disappear, sending the collective superhero world in a panic. There are like 30 people just gone. Yeah. So Vision figures out that all the people who are taken were religious in their own way, which seemed mm-hmm. to be the link of things. Right. Meanwhile, off planet, Redemptress is creating a whole world from just a desolate planet by planting like seeds. And mm-hmm. so after everything's kind of grown, the portals all land and the heroes get to this planet, which just seems to be like, there are plants, but it seems to be devoid of animal life. Mm-hmm. 
And then the ground quakes as a massive cathedral rises out of the ground in front of their eyes, with the Redemptress showing herself to them on a page stating that the adventure would continue in Warlock Chronicles number one mm-hmm. the following week. But then, if you wanted to follow the adventure, you then had to read part of Warlock and the Infinity Watch number 18 two weeks after that. Yeah. But then, if you want the end of the story, you have to go get Infinity Crusade number two. And there was also this little blurb that hinted that there would be other tidbits of information in issues of other comics. Yeah, and I think Infinity Crusade itself was like a six-issue series, I think. I I mean, the fact that like I can't tell you even that much, I think, speaks volumes about how forgettable <laughs> it is. It seemed like a lot of fucking work to like jump through these hoops. Honestly, I don't know that I would have had the patience to do the legwork to get all of the issues needed to keep up with the storylines. Like, especially if I was a little kid trying to do this back in the 90s, right? Yeah, six issues. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah, So, and it was kind of jumping between stuff. This kind of reminds me of that Millennium crossover we talked about when we were talking about the New Guardians. Like oh, yeah, yeah. way back in one of our early episodes, because the core series of Millennium, they were like, oh, yeah. So if you actually want to get the full story, you have to read yeah. every single crossover issue and not uh-huh. just, like the issues that are tie in issues aren't telling their own kind of like tie in stories. You you know, so silly. I, I hate that. Like every time they yeah. do that, I hate it. Yeah. It, it creates a really unreadable experience for the for people who are following the core series but on top of that it's a it's a tactic i think that is not actually a good business decision because people won't buy those issues if they're not adding them on their pull list like they're just like i don't i don't care i don't know what's going on i don't want to pick up and leave off in the middle of the story exactly i mean one of the core things that i remember in millennium is there's a whole bit where like i think you see a group of heroes leading an ambush or getting ready to lead an ambush on a base of the enemies and then the next issue picks up and the base has been destroyed and everyone's congratulating, mm. I think, Batman and Superman's all butthurt about it. But we don't know how any of this went down. We just know that it happened. And you're like, well, OK, so okay. I'm getting I'm getting the Reader's Digest summaries here and this is dumb. Right. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, that's so silly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like this comic, it it was clearly the beginning of a tie in. Like yeah. it felt very much for a minute like she was Nick Fury assembling her team. Mm-hmm. And they spent a lot, like like most of the comics worth of pages on a frame by frame visiting of each of the like 30 superheroes that she had used bad pickup lines to butter up. That sounds like most uh, of the comic. I'm not kidding you. I was like, okay, I don't really have to read. Like, I don't care what she's saying to these people. Like, I get what she's doing. You know what I mean? So, basically if i remember right it she wound up kind of creating a, a holy civil war where it's like the people that are following or are fighting the other heroes oh yikes okay i think i again like i have not read any of this since it came out 
She's definitely pulling like a co-leader thing where she's like, you know, she's like love bombed them and she's said nice things to them. She's isolated them from their friends. She's put them in a place they can't leave. She's, you know, infiltrating them with religious doctrine. Like it's I mean, it's it's definitely very (laughs) co-leadery and that's a special interest of mine. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I was going to (laughs) say this feels like I'm watching that Twin Flames documentary again. Oh my gosh. Oh God, it's so oh, good. There are there's just so many bad people in the world. There's two Twin Flames documentaries. There's one on Amazon and there's one on Hulu and they are both so fascinating because they approach the subject from very different angles. Oh, interesting. I wish I could watch both. I don't have Hulu, but I'll watch the oh, okay. Amazon one. Yeah, watch the Amazon yeah. one. It's it's really just kind of stunning. Okay. The Hulu one focuses more on like how it is very clearly just a money-making grift. Okay. That the founders are like in, in their whole background of being like kind of those people where you're like, oh, yeah, I could see you launching your own MLM. Yeah. Fascinating. Like, absolutely. If you are hard up for something to watch, totally go yeah. check this out because it's a true crime thing, but it's like true crime about con artists. So you're like, okay, this is pretty cool. Sounds like I've got a new something, mm. something to watch while I'm doing my macrame plant hangers. That yeah. I- hope to sell more of at some point because let's be uh, real Your you absolutely should <laughs> you should absolutely sell those things we have several in our house that jessica has been kind enough to gift us and they are amazing <laughs> oh thank you friend yeah well yeah i mean the art was that like the last thing i want to say about this like the art was like fun like it yeah was cool but i mean what was cool about it was just seeing all of the people that I like seeing in Marvel stuff. So, you know, like it was a lot of people. There were a lot of characters to get through and it wasn't just those characters who got taken. It was like all of the people around them. Like it wasn't just like Sue getting taken. It was like, then you see Reed and then you see da 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 and they're all getting together and they're having a conversation and she Hulk is wandering around anxious and Mm -hmm. you know, so (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Ron Lim is, I think one of the best artists in comic books. I think Marvel was very, very smart to basically lock him down like they did. Right. Well, like we talked about that a bit with Fabian DiCiezo where. Yeah. He was working with Fabian on Cyforce. And then he basically almost immediately after that became the main artist for Silver Surfer. And and then he was doing a lot of these Infinity crossover books. I love Ron Lim's artwork. It's still some of my favorite thing. It's like him and Mark Bagley, I think, are like the definitive Marvel artists for me. I can see that. Yeah. Oh, well, what about you? What did you bring for us today that is shiny and amazing? Okay. So I am talking about a book that that we have discussed multiple times on this show, but never actually taken a look at. Can't believe you're finally doing it. (laughs) Right. I am talking about Ravage 2099, number one. It was published by Marvel Comics in December of 1992. It was written by Stan Lee. It was penciled by Paul Ryan, not former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Who? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it was inked by Keith Williams. Ink assists were done by Steve Alexandrov. Colored by Carl Beckton. Edited by Joey Cavalieri. And editor-in-chief was also Tommy DeFalco. So he gets a two for today. Oh, wow. Tommy. Yeah. He's right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> Tom, come on the show. We'd love to talk to you sometime. It'd be great. <laughs> so 
like I said, this is one of those books that I have talked about because it's like it's just part of like the the cultural zeitgeist of like 90s comics. Yeah. It's like often held up as an example of like a bad 90s comic. I have two copies of the first issue that have spots of honor in my collection. I have one that is slabbed, but it was slabbed because it was a printing error. And so they didn't do the gold foil frame around the cover. So it's just, it's a solid white cover on the frame. And I think it actually looks really cool. And then the other one I have, it's the only Stan Lee autograph I have. He autographed numerous copies of this because he wrote it. Um, so that was one where like I picked it up, but I can't read it because it's a book with Stan Lee's autograph on it. So I'm like, I don't want to read this. Like I don't. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, a hundred percent. But yeah, recently Harvey Doss, one of our local shops had a, a sale where they basically just had an entire room of their warehouse open as nothing but dollar bins. And so I wound up picking up like Mm -hmm. the first seven or eight issues of this series, which is Stan Lee's run for writing it. And uh, yeah, so I'm excited to talk about it today. This is one of the final books that Stanley actually wrote himself. I think it was the last Marvel comic that he did until he came back in 2007 for the last Fantastic Four story. And then he may have done a couple of what if issues later on, but it, it's always a little bit nebulous with him, too, because he gets writing credits for all sorts of books because like you know, he was involved with the character creation and all that. But I think this is like. I think this was like the last original comic from Marvel that he really wrote. He did a couple of things for DC after this, but not much. Now, this was one of the launch titles for when Marvel spun up its 2099 imprint, which was an alternate future of the Marvel Universe. And it starred new characters who were updated takes on classic staples. We got Spider-Man 2099, Punisher 2099, Doom 2099, and Ravage 2099 as like the launch titles. Then we got other ones like... X-Men 2099 and Ghost Rider and so on and so forth. Like, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Ravage 2099 was a completely original character, though. All of these series launched with foil covers. Spider-Man had a red one. Punisher had a blue. Doom was silver. And Ravage was gold. And then this whole line was supposed to be like a really big deal at the time it rolled out. And Ravage was possibly meant to be the biggest deal in this batch of comics because he was a brand new character that Stanley had come back to write. Mm, okay. Yeah. So like just, you know, I'm just kind of setting the scene a little bit. Yeah. So the comic opens with this random dude being pursued by flying cars of what's called an eco patrol. It's not entirely clear what this is. It's part of like the megacorp structure of the 2099 world. Yeah. But it sounds like they're kind of like taking an environmental aspect to their operating standard, which involves like lethal force against people who are identified as polluters. We don't ever find out what that is. But anyway, so they're going after this guy. They're saying that he's a polluter. He needs to stop. He runs into the sewer and they start blasting through the top of it to get to him. They basically fly down on jetpacks. He opens fire on the patrol and screams that he'll never go up. And the patrol just like guns him down while saying, oh, well, the choice was never yours. As the body is being picked up, one of the officers calls into Eco Central And he reports to the CEO, Paul Phillip, that they gunned this guy down because he basically put up resistance. Paul Phillip is upset because his patrols keep on killing polluters and he wants to have one taken alive so they can follow the criminals to people higher up the chain. He then is talking to Tiana, who seems like she's his assistant, but we'll come back to that later on. Tiana tells him that he's treading on dangerous ground. 
but he's like, I'll tread where I like as a CEO. And if we have traders, I need to report them to Alchemax, which is like the villainous megacorp. <laughs> Apparently, EcoCentral is a subsidiary of theirs. And then Tiana just like rolls out the story about how her father worked for EcoCentral. And then he tried to warn Alchemax about corruption within the company. And they marooned him on an island called Hellrock that's inhabited by Mutroids. But nobody knows that this man is dead or alive right now. Like, okay. So he's clearly alive. We, we know he's alive. Like, cause it's like, nobody knows <laughs> right. if he's dead or alive. Well, it's like, well, you can tell us that unless he was actually alive and there's going to be dramatic. <laughs> <sighs> okay. So Tiana, it is very implied that she is his secretary. Later on, it's revealed that she's not. Um, I had to look it up. Apparently she used to be a secretary and now she's like his confidant. It's not explained in this issue. So Tiana tells him that she couldn't stand to have something like that happen to him. And then Paul Phillip tells her that if they can't trust the system, they'll have anarchy. Tiana tells him he's a delusional figurehead who's nothing more than a puppet. And he storms out of his office saying, oh, here no more. And then we cut to him later walking through a parking garage where a bunch of street punks randomly try to mug him. And Paul Phillip thrashes them without breaking a sweat. He's like, you're no match for me. I'm a CEO. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? You get paid way too much. <laughs> I don't know, man. But like, but I'm like, apparently being a CEO comes with like Krav Maga classes or something. Oh my God. So he like thrashes them without breaking a sweat. One of the punks reveals that his dad was the polluter that was killed by Ika earlier in the day, but that he wasn't actually a polluter. Instead, he'd been someone who'd found out who was behind the pollution. And then he was targeted because of that. Paul Phillip tells the kid whose name is Dak that he's coming with him. Oh, and Dak can call him sir. I'm like, okay, like kind of weird because like also Dak is a person of color and it doesn't feel great with like the lens of, you know, 30 years later. Right. Paul Phillip then barges into the office of Alchemix's director general with Dak, and then they reveal the corruption within the company. The director general refers to Paul Phillip as Ravage because we learn, this is when we learn that his last name is actually Ravage. (laughs) I'm like, okay, like, I feel like we could have gotten, we could have gotten a caption explaining this at the very beginning or something like that, but I don't know. That was Uh, the big reveal, Mike. That was it. Anyway, this dude promises to like investigate the claims and then his assistant is like, oh, do you think it's true? And the guy's like, oh, I'm afraid you overheard too much. And so he murders his assistant because <laughs> what? Because his assistant overheard too much. He like uses kind of like some like laser repulsor thing and knocks him out of the window of his high rise. And then he immediately calls another guy and he's like, oh, my assistant had an accident. You're my new assistant. And also get this window fixed. Oh, my gosh. What? Uh, oh, God. So he replaces his assistant, and then the executive sets up a conference call with the rest of Alchemax's leadership, and they openly plot to murder Ravage and exile Dak to Hellrock. And Tiana, however, listened in on the call because she worked as the assistant for one of the other directors. This is so not explained. I had to look at the Wikipedia summary to kind of figure out what was going on. Anyway, so... my head. Yeah... So Tiana listened to the call and runs off to warn Ravage about the plot against him. Meanwhile, we see a Mutroid emerge from the waters of the docks and then start making his way through the city. He's like leaving footsteps that are burning through the pavement. And then there's a mass panic as soon as he like steps out in the open and the general populace sees him. Tiana tries to warn Ravage in his office about what's going on, but the dude still won't hear it. He's like, just like in the most extreme case of denial. 
And then they're in the middle of an argument when the Mutroid busts down the door and the Mutroid says he's there to bring Ravage payment for secretly betraying Alchemex immediately after an eco patrol swarms in and they try to shoot Ravage claiming that he's a traitor to humanity. But he moves at the last second and instead of getting like killed, he just gets this scar kind of going across his face. Ravage fights the patrol off. The Mutroid says that he'll have to take the man out himself. And so Ravage grabs Tiana and then they jump out the high rise window right before an explosion destroys the okay. office. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> we're not done. Okay. <laughs> you just it just keeps <sighs> ramping up. I just keep expecting you're gonna stop it. I'm like, Jessica, tired. I can't. I can't with this. <laughs> I'm like exhausted just hearing about it. You uh, have to read this. Wow. I, I, I did. It's mm. what a wild time. I <laughs> you have some regrets. <laughs> I'm seriously regretting some life choices that I had. <laughs> You're never getting this time back. I'm never I'm, getting this time mm. back. Our poor listeners. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Ravage gets Tiana and Dak to safety and then he vows revenge. And then like at this point in time, his speech pattern changes too. like, he's always been very kind of like clear and concise. And all of a sudden they start having him kind of like using a speech pattern where it's like, um, kind of like an accented gruff take on things. Like it's, it's meant to be more lowbrow and it's just, okay. <sighs> gruff and angry and it, but it feels like kind of weird. Cause it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. He also has been going around with like a tight ponytail. And then, you know, he's just let his ponytail like go loose too to kind of show that he's letting his wild man in charge. He then breaks into a recycling center and kits himself out with an outfit that I can only describe as something that looks like a high fashion version of Mad Max. And I am going to send you a screenshot. Oh, no. It's like, honey, like somebody's having a minty bee and it's this guy. It makes no sense, Jessica. Like, it's just it. It's so bizarre. <laughs> okay, let me tell you what's happening right now. Whoa, I got to figure out what's happening. Let me just take a look in, a look in here. Gosh, it's so funny because he's got like the top of it is like a like a tattered Doctor Doom vibe, with like metal shoulders and like. So it's like the remains of his trench coat, like that he was wearing yeah. earlier, because oh, he had this he had this very color coordinated corporate outfit with like a vest yes. and like oh with the green a trench coat with like giant shoulder pads and everything god now he has this open vest with his like abdomen and like chest hair uh-huh. like hanging out he has like one earring with like a knife on it he ha- definitely has a mullet he definitely has a mullet he's got a ch- chain oh my god yeah, and the other thing is you can see how he's got like the scar and then it's going all the way down to his lip and it's like curled up in a like a permanent yeah. sneer. That isn't really yeah. explained as to like how that happened. Oh my god. That's funny. I'm gonna call it like the store brand version of Jonah Hex is basically how they designed yeah. his face to look. The other thing is his cheekbones have gotten a lot more pronounced too, which doesn't uh, make sense. And then I don't know where the earring <laughs> came from. I don't think he had that before. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. He just found it at the, you know, honestly, like I, I got to hand it to him. Like the guy definitely found like a bunch of cool stuff at the dump. Oh yeah. Which like Great. you can do. You definitely can do. I, my built my house partially from rubble. So, but like, yeah, no, he's got like a whole like arm shield. He's got like, he's got a little barbed oh, the- wire belt, a little barbed wire on his arm. He's got like a full chain across his 
<laughs> for some reason. Like, what are you doing with that stuff? Yeah. He's got a chain across his chest, you know, and he's and he has like just kind of strapped metal pieces to himself, and mm-hmm. of course they're mismatched. Yeah, it, this is fascinating. This is just like hobbled together. Yep. He did find a really cool belt. Yeah, apparently. which you know, whatever. And then he's also got like kind of cogs over his man boobs. And yeah, that was fascinating. And the cogs <laughs> we see later on, I think in the next issue, he can throw them like shurikens. Oh, of course he can. Like, no, it's that, a whole thing. that makes a lot of sense. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, oh, no. so so that is the look that we get. After that, he steals a garbage truck from the turn of the century and drives off, swearing to make them, in quotes, pay. So then we get an epilogue on Hellrock, which has been described as the continent of evil. And we see the castle of Hellrock's ruler, whose name is Deathstrike, but it is spelled D-E-T-H-S-T-R-Y-K. Like, okay. Of course it is. Yeah. This is the 90s. It's, uh, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, so a Cirrus has come into Deathstrike's chambers and warns him of her vision of a man named Ravage who has died and been reborn and is destined to be Deathstrike's greatest foe. Deathstrike, who we finally get to see him, and I can only describe him as Dr. Doom with a blowout hairdo attached. (laughs) He says that he's going to kill Ravage again because no one can challenge him until he's conquered the entire human race. And that's it. Like, you know, to be continued. Okay. (laughs) That was exciting. I am not lying when I say this comic is a fever dream. Like, I've always (laughs) known about it. I have come across it multiple times in the dollar bins. And it's generally regarded, like I said, as one of the worst examples of just genuinely terrible comics. I don't know. This story feels like something that Stanley would have written in the 70s. It's not like I I know that Stanley was an incredibly gifted creator in a lot of ways. Like he came up with several concepts that, you know, are still with us today. But if you go back and read the stuff that he actually wrote, it's like, you know, it's fine. It's like it's fine for that time. But it feels like his writing never really evolved past the 60s or 70s. Yeah. And this comic feels like a something that he would have written during that time. Like the characters are extremely flat. There are a bunch of weird plot holes that make no sense, but you just have to ignore them in order to keep going with the story. And Right. You know, like, I mean, sure, there's like a weird... I don't know, trash continent or something full of like radiation and pollution where people are exiled randomly, like, but, but no one wants to talk about it or something. I don't. It's called New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) Out here, we just call it Benicia. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like I, uh, I feel like you just have to ignore all of these issues just to like kind of keep going with the story. And that said, this is the kind of ridiculousness that I actually really love because it's just trying to take itself so seriously. But you can't as a reader, like it's it's almost physically impossible to take this seriously. I will say Ryan's artwork is actually really solid and it does a nice job with all the cyberpunk settings and aesthetics. But like there is nothing here moving the dystopian sci-fi genre forward. And (laughs) I feel like the rest of the 2099 books actually did a pretty solid job of doing that because I don't know, like I feel like the 2099 books actually did a really interesting job of moving that general setting 
forward in a certain direction. They took that whole evil megacorp in place of like countries and dictators, but they really ran with it. And it was, you know, it was fun. It wasn't always good, but it was fun. But yeah, this, like this thing, I'm like, I honestly could see this like with Jack Kirby art. And I would totally believe that it would came out of the 1960s or early seventies. Like there's just nothing really original here. So yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, I am. (laughs) Oh man. This series ran for like 30 some odd issues. And, uh. I don't know if I could actually survive trying to read it. My body might try to shut down in order to just protect itself. <laughs> we don't want that. Mm. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's for our final episode. It's just. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. We've already got it planned out, folks. Yeah. You vote on when it is. No, I'm just yeah, exactly. kidding. <laughs> Call this 900 number and cast your vote. <laughs> yes. Uh, by the way, it is uh, $3 per vote and yep. um, all proceeds go to the poor comics collectors fund. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be directly into our pockets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> God. Anyway, we will be back next week with another deep dive. No idea what that's going to be because we, as always, are recording these totally out of order. Um, and then oh, yeah. after that, we'll be back with another dollar bin discovery. Uh, I think this will be. This should be dropping right around the time of Christmas. So I don't know if you're listening to it right around the time that it drops. Happy holidays. And until then, stay safe out there and we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us. So text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson. Written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan MacDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who's at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is tencenttakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Mastodon, Facebook, TikTok, and Blue Sky. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 94951. And Pengrove is spelled P E N. N-G-R-O-V-E. Send us stuff. (laughs) If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.